Hey folks, welcome to another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit. I'm Jeff Salzman, the Pundit, and I'm here to share a conversation I had with my longtime comrade, an integral psychotherapist extraordinaire, Dr. Keith Witt, who is The Shrink. Dr. Keith has really moved the ball on integral psychotherapy in his over 40 years of private practice. You can check out his books, videos, and the School of Love and the Therapist in the Wild series at his website, drkeithwitt.com. You can find more of my commentary on politics and culture at my Daily Evolver blog and podcast, which is found at dailyevolver.com. This week, Keith and I will be talking about one of the oldest and most dreaded of human afflictions, and that's depression. I doubt there's anybody who hasn't been affected by depression, whether firsthand or with loved ones. In this conversation, Keith and I consider not just the suffering, but also the wisdom and growth potential that depression offers. We look at the qualities of modernity that magnify the condition, the mixed blessing of pharmaceuticals and neuroscience. And finally, we look at how depression is experienced and best treated at different stages in the developmental journey. So, thank you as always for listening to The Shrink and the Pundit. We love hearing from you, and you can write us at jeff at dailyevolver.com or leave us a voicemail message using the orange button on the dailyevolver.com homepage. All right, good to have you with us. Here's Dr. Keith and me on depression. Well, shall we dive into what Talk we're about talking about today? <laughs> yes, depression. It's certainly something that a lot of people talk about and think about a lot. And if yeah. you scratch the surface of a lot of people who don't seem depressed, they'll tell you that they are, or at least they know the deep flavors of it. Is that something, would you say that, is that new? Is that a function of higher stages, or has it always been part of the deal? And where does it fall in our maps? First of all, when therapists talk about depression, it's like Eskimos talking about snow. <laughs> it's, there is a, a, a penalty of experiences that fall within the, the zone of depression. Hmm. But generally, it's you're bummed enough that you can't live the life that you want to live. And in general, if you're dealing realistically with it, as, as a lot of, every good therapist does, it's biopsychosocial. You know, there's a wide variety of factors that influence it. There's genetic factors and cultural factors and individual choice factors. And also, it's like all the, um, the psychological problems, it's a, it's, it basically is a natural capacity. All mammals have a capacity to be depressed. Um, if you take a prairie vole and, and take away its mate, it'll have all the symptoms of depression. Mm-hmm. If you take a mammal and put it in a situation where it's uncomfortable and it can't act to help itself out, it'll develop clinical depression. But human beings, when they develop self-awareness, which I believe happened a couple hundred thousand years ago with the FOXP2 mutations that gave us language and grammar and past, present, and future, human beings, of course, take all the emotions and amplify them. And one of the human capacities, because of past, present, and future, is this capacity for anxiety and depression. Um, it's a devastating capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I mean, when you wake up to self-consciousness, as you say, I mean, you realize there's a past, the present, and the future. You also realize, I'm not going to be in this future. I'm finite. Right. I'm going to die. I mean, my dogs don't know this. No other mammal knows this, but human beings know this. And I'm sorry, it's fucking depressing. <laughs> yeah. So there. It sure is. It's, it's, <laughs> this is an appropriate response to our existential situation. Yeah. One of the characteristics of the second tier of, of Keel is a diminished fear of death. That there's right. a level of development where consciousness stops being as, as frightened of death. And that it happens to be, to happen predictably at Teal. Yeah. But it can happen at any value mean. So it's this, it's this human capacity. Um, and every value mean has had to deal with it in a particular fashion. It's difficult because nervous systems are primed to deal with threat, and we can live in the past and the future. If you start vibrating out of control, you know, like human consciousness, if you take all our emotions and all our thoughts together, they're generally coherent. They're like those old gyroscopes that we used to get as kids. You'd spin them, and they would spin, and they would be like all perfect. And then they'd get a little bit out of whack, and then yeah. wham, they'd be scattering all over the floor. Well, human consciousness is like that. And so most of us all the time are unconsciously and consciously adjusting towards coherence, hmm. both with our mood and with our thoughts. But if they get a little bit out of whack, and then that little bit of out of whackness gets amplified, we can get lost really fast, and all of a sudden we're all over the place. We have obsessive-compulsive disorder. We have um, de major depression. We're lost in a jealous rage. You know, we're, we're trusting our emotions and our thoughts when we shouldn't, when they're completely distorted. Um, mm -hmm. And so human beings can do that. Uh, it's, and so it's really dangerous to get out of uh, sync this way, so much so that, that a lot of the... Um, the modern neuroscientists basically say that affect regulation, you know, basically ad ad adjusting how we feel about things is the primary task of development and the primary outcome of secure attachment um, and insecure attachment. That being said, it's, it's psychosocial. There's a lot more depression now. The modern modernity produces more depression. Mm -hmm. the, the current generation has four times more depression than the last one and ten times more depression than the one before that. Now, is that and a function of, of their actual state or is that a function of our awareness of, of their state? I think partly it's a function of more self-awareness and overdiagnosis, which happens mm -hmm. an awful lot. Yeah, but I I think that's just part of it. I think, uh, but it also is the, just the sort of objectively true, if you, if you will. I mean, I'd yeah. say there's a flavor of suffering, of psychic suffering at every stage that is probably different. I mean, if I think yeah. of you know in red, I mean, you're just basically trying to cringe away from the warlord, whoever or whoever's going to like smack you next or take your stuff. Right. I mean, that's a certain kind of anxiety for sure. Uh, and then the relief, the relief at red is what? Either be the warlord yeah. or develop a secure relationship in the, in the authoritarian hierarchy so that you feel generally protected. Exactly. Just like at purple, purple tribes are designed for group affect regulation. And so purple groups don't have the same kind of psychopathology that modern groups do. Way less depression, yeah. way less psychosis of all sorts, less anxiety. Because you have a group of people regulating you, and depression is very much involved with social isolation. Yeah. Now, at beige, you're just looking for, you know, if I have my next meal and if I'm warm, if I get, I get to have sex when I want to have sex, 
you know, that makes me feel better at base. At blue, if I feel like I'm following the values of the sacred text, and if I'm, I have the approval of the, the mythic membership, that's what I believe will cause, help me feel better. At orange, I'll feel better if I succeed, if I, if I move up merit-based hierarchies, if I have profit, if I have success, if I look good. And at green, I feel like I'll feel better if my feelings are acknowledged and if I acknowledge other people's feelings and if I'm properly cared for. And I care. So, you, you know, you see these emphasis on what the remedy for depression and the source of depression it comes out depending upon, upon worldviews. Mm-hmm. But also there's, there's larger effects. For instance... Learned Helplessness, uh, Martin Seligman um, wrote a book called Learned Helplessness. He uh, uh, produced a whole bunch of depressed dogs. Um, and I've talked about this study before. It was a really nasty study. He yeah, I, I hate this already, but go on. Okay, I know, I know, I know I'm sorry. But the bottom line is he, he, put the dogs, he put the dogs in situations where there was two sides of a cage. One side would have an electric shock. The dogs would get up and move to the other side. No problem. Those dogs didn't get particularly bummed. They would just get up and move when there was electric shock at the bottom of the cage. But then he put a mild electric shock at the bottom of both sides. The dogs couldn't, couldn't avoid it. You know, they went back and forth. They'd get nervous. They'd yelp and complain. And then after a while, they would get depressed. They'd collapse. They wouldn't want to eat and so on. All but 15% of the dogs. Hmm. Actually, 15% of the dogs would get up and move to the other side every once in a while they were psychotically optimistic. They thought someday something's going to get better. And they were right. You know, eventually they changed the experiment. The, the, the depressed dogs never got undepressed, but the psychotically optimistic dogs, they eventually felt normal again because when they changed it, they, were, they went over, oh, this time is better. Hmm. But you put any mammal into a situation of learned helplessness, they get depressed. So if you look at demographically at the United States, where do we have the most depression? We have the most in low socioeconomic groups, where there's less opportunity and there's more sense of oppression, so more sense of helplessness. You have it more in black communities than in Hispanic communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember back in so, uh, when I was in the business, uh, you know, we did stress management seminars and all these sorts of things, and uh, typically that the most depressed, uh, unsatisfied employee at a typical modern company are the secretaries and the, the support yeah. staff. Another way to depress people is to gradually give them more and more stuff to do to a sense that there, there's never enough time to do what they feel like they need to do. And I think that's what's producing... There's a combination in modernity where there's more stuff to do than we, than we can do in a way that we feel competent and comfortable. And even though there's all this connectivity, a lot of this connectivity actually stops human relatedness. For instance, when... When real people have sex, <laughs> a guy, a guy, you know, when you're having sex with a real person and you're a guy, you release um, five times more vasopressin than if you masturbate. Hmm. That your body knows when you're in connection with a real person as opposed to when you're in connection with a fantasy person. So we have a lot of people that maintain text relationships or electronic relationships. Those text relationships and electronic relationships, I, th- I think it's good to have connectivity but there's certain kinds of deep yearnings that aren't satisfied by the lack of in-person contact that you get eye-to-eye, skin-to-skin. And there's a lot less eye-to-eye, skin-to-skin. That's why the, 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 the number of unchurched people in the United States probably is partly a reflection of the increased depression because churches, when they work well, provide a sense of social connectivity. And the number one thing that causes is associated with depression is a sense of isolation. 
Hmm. And so there's all that stuff going on. And, and so depression is a human capacity. Everybody uh, experiences it to some extent, just like we do anxiety. About one in 10 Americans could be diagnosed as having a major depression at some point, but only about one in five people get treatment. And mostly the treatment they get are the drugs. Mm-hmm. Yes, the whole drug thing is a big problem. Really? How so? Oh, God. You know, in 1973, there were three Nobel Prize winners that, uh, uh, and they all got prizes for their study of animals. Um, uh, Carl Van Friesch for bees and, and the Conrad Lorenz for chicks and, print, and printing themselves and Nico uh, Timbergen for how animals moved in groups. And in his acceptance speech, Nico Timbergen talked about the Alexander Technique. He said the Alexander Technique, he was quite impressed with. The Alexander Technique involves adjusting the way that you move and your posture so that it optimizes um, your, the ergonomics of your body. And when people did that, they found that they felt a lot better, that they felt more confident. They felt less anxious and less depressed. And Nico Timbergen was quite struck by this as a biologist and said, this is the future. But little did he know that in 1973, Julius Axelrod at the Institute of National Mental Health had discovered a way to measure norepinephrine in human brains. The ability to measure neurotransmitters in the human brains turned on two separate but connected groups of people. One group it turned on was all the neuroscientists who, now that they were getting the ability to measure neurochemicals in brains and do functional MRIs, they were beginning excited about, now we're going to find out how consciousness works and how people really work. And they were looking at individual brains, generally separate from other brains. Totally excited them. And they started measuring serotonin and dopamine. And they found fascinating things. They found low dopamine uh, levels in depressed people, low serotonin levels. They found um, uh, compromised acetylcholine levels in schizophrenics. They began to come up with this hypothesis that there's neurochemical imbalances in brains. And that's what causes mental illness. That's what causes anxiety and depression. Lower uh, GABA, gamma mean butyric acid um, uh, in uh, anxious people and and so on. So they were all excited about it. They were going to discover human brains. They started looking into it, the biochemical correlates of this. And the other group that got excited about it, real excited about it, were the drug companies. Hmm. Because the drug companies knew, because human beings all experience distress on a daily basis. If we can come up with a drug to make people interested, feel like they're feeling better, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of profit, and indeed, that's what happened. So the drug companies were very invested in selling to the American public that depression is a biochemical invest, uh, uh, imbalance and that you take these drugs to correct the biochemical imbalance. Now, what they did is they basically hijacked the science. Um, they paid the researchers to put their names on drug company-generated uh, uh, studies. They suppressed studies that, that showed that their drugs didn't work as well as placebos. They gave vast amounts of money to uh, researchers if they could come up with positive results. And as a result, um, they promoted the, and because America is the only civilized country that allows drug companies to advertise, they began to indoctrinate the public that if you feel bad, take our drugs. And so right now, the antidepressant drugs are the most widely prescribed form of drugs in the country. They generate hundreds of billions of dollars of profit, um, so much of them that what we put into the sewage is actually poisoning fishes in the oceans. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the studies, and the meta-analysis has been done on the studies, 
these drugs work barely better than placebos in most cases. In fact, there was a study, New England Journal of Medicine, the editor came out in 2009, they did a meta-analysis where a bunch of experts said, look, these drugs work barely better than placebos. They should only be used for severely depressed people. Um, and we've been perpetrating a hoax on the, on the public. And she wrote a, a, an article doing a mea culpa on this and saying we have to change it. Of course, that was five years ago and got lost because, you know, you're up against a, a multi-billion dollar industry. And, you know, corporations, if they were people, they're red people. You know, they don't care. They, they, they want to grow and, and create profit. In 2007, the drug companies spent $23 billion promoting um, antidepressants, and $16 billion of that were free samples that they spread to all the doctors in the country. Hmm. So somebody comes in, spends 20 minutes with the doctor, and he says, yeah, I've been feeling bummed, and the doctor has a drawer full of Prozac that somebody has given him. So he says, well, try this. And remember, the, the placebo effect is quite robust um, with uh, any kind of uh, mood disorder. Mm-hmm. And so what we created was a bunch of people essentially addicted to these things because you get addicted to them, and there's severe withdrawal effects. And there's been a significant number of people over the last 20 years that I've worked with that have stayed on the antidepressants just because they don't want to go through the withdrawal that they go through, the rebound yeah. depression, the weird feelings in their body. And so those drugs should only be used in a case of severe depression, and even then they only work about a third of the time. When they work, they can work well. I know, and I think many people know people who have been I mean, my mother, without uh, Paxil, uh, she you was, you know, housebound uh, and, you know, pretty bad shape physically, but she was able to move around. But she just became um, fixated on the cars going by that we live in a country road and the cars going by and feeling that it was the same car going up and down and sort of menacing her. And I couldn't talk her out of it. I couldn't stand her at the window and point out that that's a different car and that's a different car that, you know, nothing worked until we got Paxil. And, and it worked. And she didn't even know that she was taking it because she had so many pills. And it worked really well. Yeah, I mean, she just stopped talking. When they stopped work, being, it stopped being a problem. When they work, they work well. Mm-hmm. You know, the, um, the, main, uh, the, the head pharmacist for Cottage Hospital, a guy I really uh, admire in Santa Barbara, he said that if, 10 is a, if, you're, at a 10, if you're at a 10 and you have a bad depression, and the antidepressant works, it'll take you down to an eight. It'll take you down so that you're functional and not crazy anymore, if it works. Yeah. And so that's how they should be used. And when they're used that way, every once in a while, they, if yeah. they're used and, and people are followed up and they're used one drug at a time, they're great. And I've recommended people to have medication referrals lots of times. But, you know, there's lots of things that cause depression. For yeah. instance, um, low testosterone can cause depression. Uh, uh, thyroid, hypothyroid can cause depression. Uh, hypoglycemia can cause depression. Other endocrine imbalances can cause depression. A chronic lack of sleep. One of the main problems that most depressed people have is insomnia. Yeah. And insomnia itself can cause depression because of a lot of effects. And so what do you do? Well, when the, if, even if the drug is working, if somebody's available for psychotherapy, what you do is you work on how people think, what they do, and how they relate. Because ultimately, you can affect how you think, what you do, and how you relate. And if you put energy into thinking, relating, and doing in positive, healthy ways, you will become progressively less depressed and progressively more glad to be alive. Yeah. And so I, you, you take depre- I, we all take depression seriously, and 
what you do is you want to get people doing, thinking, and relating in the ways that have been associated with endless research with relief. You know, for most people, for instance, most people, if you exercise a half hour three times a week, a year from now, or, and then one group does that, one group takes antidepressants. A year from now, the people that are exercising are much less depressed, much healthier, and much more stable yeah. than the people who took any of the antidepressants. So if a doctor is being responsible, um, and if people are relating to it as just pragmatically, you try that half, that three half hour exercise regimen for a, for a month or two before you start trying a drug. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you just can't blame us for trying, Keith. You know, it's just the, this <laughs> idea of having a pill or, you know, a magic lamp and a genie. I mean, something that's going to come along and make us happy. And we don't have to do oh, anything. Yeah. Good Lord, what a mirage that is. It takes um, shape, in again, in different stages and different contexts in different ways. Yeah. But in the modern world, it takes the shape of pills, as, you know, in science and neurology yeah. and you know, all of that stuff. And then, of course, advertising and money. And all of a sudden, you have what we have, which is, uh, you know, <laughs> so much antidepression uh, medicine in our urine that, you know, it's like screwing, screwing <laughs> with the fish. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, it's, you know, one thing about it, I think Ken said this, you know, pathological orange really they can, pathological orange causes a lot more damage than almost pathological anything else. Yeah, well, because orange has such power. Yeah, you know, once orange goes goes south, boy, everybody is in trouble. <laughs> that being said, like I have nothing against drugs, you know, and I have nothing of against course. drug companies. I just want them. I, what I would like is I would like the monopolies to be broken up, and I would like um, uh, there to be a dialectic that that, that, that moderates the excesses of orange monopolies. And, and I think we're going to see that in the next, like you said, you, a reflection of that, maybe a premonition of that was Obama's uh, State of the Union speech. Yeah. Um, no, I think we're moving know, into, you know, more, into, we're just becoming more intelligent all the time. And this is, you know, yeah. the integral view, I mean, in, in shorthand. And, and so, of course, we like drugs from an inter integral perspective. <laughs> yes, um, yes. We just need to be aware of what they are and, where they work and where they don't. And yeah, they're, they're an arrow in the quiver, uh, but they're not the whole thing. It's like, you know, the Prometheus myth, uh, yeah. you know, Prometheus is just zapped or, uh, the, um, Pandora's box. Those were, were in my opinion, those myths reflect, you know, when consciousness comes, there's a lot of unexpected cool stuff and a lot of unexpected problem stuff. And one of the problems of modernity is depression. And interestingly, you know, when you press people together, one of the strange results of people being pressed together is there's a more subjective sense of social isolation. Something like 45% of people in New York City live alone. It's in a way easier to be lost in a crowd. And so what we need in modernity is more mechanisms for positive and satisfying and, and fulfilling interpersonal connections, which is the number one thing associated with not being depressed and feeling like life works. Yeah. Um, well, it's certainly true for and, me. And, I mean, if I think yeah. of myself, I mean, I have struggled with depression. I come from a line of people who have, and I've medicated. I've tried everything. I've gone through different bouts of all kinds of things. But what 
keeps me stable and sane now is what you just said. I mean, I know I have to be with people. There's a certain, as an Enneagram 5, there's a certain reflexive <laughs> want to be isolated and alone. And so I'm always sort of, oh, shit, I have to be with people. But I do know yes, do. that I have to be with people. So I've set up my life so I am. I do my work. I mean, I realize that trying to be happy isn't the way to be happy. Happiness is a byproduct of yeah. you know doing work that is good. And then I also work with my mind, where I am aware of what I'm thinking and how I'm thinking, and I have you know I have enough of that sort of witness consciousness that I can see myself more than than I used to instead of just be myself. And that has helped too. And this is really at 60, I am the happiest I've ever been in my life. Uh, I can tell. Yeah, I can feel that radiating from you yeah. when, when we talk. And, 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 and incidentally, you know, I, I, I also exercise at least four days a week. There you go. Yeah, and, and I you sweat. Know, <laughs> I, you know, I had major, major depression when I was 15. So, so much so that my parents kind of got freaked out. I, I'm, when intense people get, get into agitated depressants, particularly 15-year-olds, they can be alarming. So my, my parents hospitalized me, and they didn't have the antidepressants in 1965, so they gave me electroconvulsive therapy. Right. And I had 23 electroshocks. I've mentioned this wow. before. Yes. Over a period of five weeks. Um, and it, the electroconvulsive therapy works. You know, you're not depressed when you come out of the seizure after electroconvulsive therapy. Hmm. And when you're not depressed, uh, then you have more clarity. You know, I, have, I, had a, there's, I had a powerful mind beneath that depression. And when the depression was reduced by those electroconvulsive treatments, my mission arose spontaneously. I knew I, needed, I wanted to be a healer. I knew I wanted to be a martial artist and a warrior. Uh, it came out really strong when the depression was suppressed. And so I left that hospital and started uh, studying uh, martial arts and, and psychotherapy and never looked back, essentially. Yeah. Um, and that you could see then, that it, it, from an integral perspective as being a healthy integration of red. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then th this is where the whole uh, uh, conveyor belt. Um, if we see depression as a sign, as it often is, I mean, remember, there's, there's a bazillion different kinds. But if we see depression as a sign that the current worldview is breaking down and that we need to push through to a new worldview, mm -hmm. then that completely reorganizes our thinking about the experience. No, it's not a sign of disease under that circumstance. It's actually a reflection of development. Yeah. And rather than, let me see, get really frightened and treat the disease of depression, let me see what progress forward I need to make that will leave me feeling more um, uh, solid and more connected and more meaningful in, in, in my life. Right on. Well, yeah. I and mean, there's actually... Ken talks about how at every stage of development, there's a dark night. And, you know, yeah. this is well mapped in the mystical traditions, dark night of the spirit, dark night of the soul. Uh, and you sort of, you're supposed to be depressed. <laughs> you're supposed to be unhappy. Yeah. Uh, it's part of the, the path. And uh, so we need to, in some ways, be friendlier to that part of us. And also, I think as we get into, you know, we're well therapized and, you know, we've been around the block. We see that we can actually turn towards our unhappiness in a way that we never wanted to or didn't think was healthy, even. 
in earlier stages, and we can metabolize it more courageously and openly and skillfully. This is one of the main messages that I put out in Integral Mindfulness, that, that really, that if you, that moving forward, there's two kinds of pleasure that, that are healthy pleasures in our life. One are basically hedonic pleasures, like, like sitting in the sun and eating a good meal and getting a good night's sleep and making love and, <laughs> and uh, you know, watching a good TV show, seeing a good play, hearing music. And the other ones are what are called eudaimonic uh, pleasures, which are being engaged in what feels like meaningful activity. And those can be physically uncomfortable. You know, you can be in an athletic contest and be, be very uncomfortable and yet feel ecstatic. You can be doing uh, uh, work of some sort, be exhausted, and yet feel uplifted by the work. Hmm. Um, you can be in a dangerous situation and somehow feel ecstatic that you're somehow staying focused on whatever your purpose is in that situation. And we need both of those. Yeah. And this is what the new, the new positive psychology has been studying. Well, it's interesting because, you know, part of it is for me, when I think about, you know, sort of the impulses in my mind and body, which is to just be happy and to have pleasure and, you know, not have any stress and don't try too hard. And, you know, I sometimes uh, get sort of faux mad at God for setting this <laughs> world up so that it's such a fucking struggle, you know. And uh, why can't we just be delivered to the, you know... 72 virgins and get it over with. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I realize, you know, it's just sort of an immature, it's even this idea of heaven where all your problems are gone. It's like, as you get a little higher in the development, all of that just feels like thin gruel. It's kind of just a, an immature fantasy. And then you really can, with whole heart, turn towards the struggle and find happiness right there. Who knew? It's interesting. It's the, it really is the problem with God in the second person. <laughs> you know, part of reconciling God in the second person is how do we understand, how do we reconcile the, the fact that everything is God all the time, which, which increasingly seems obvious to me, yeah. and yet there is not a consciousness in God that gives a nice person, you know, terminal cancer and lets an asshole live to 90. Yeah. Okay? But apparently there isn't a consciousness of God that weighs in on social justice or on fairness and that kind of stuff, that there's much more complicated dynamics in play. And so it, it's very hard to, to reconcile that God in the second person. Um, it's, it's hard to reconcile mm -hmm. if there's consciousness on the other side. Why doesn't that consciousness yeah. uh, create more social justice? Right. Um, and apparently, you know, the... the, the People come up with things like God works in mysterious ways. My personal, no uh, uh, <laughs> my, my, my personal uh, uh, sense of it is, is that you know, God basically gave, made me um, an incarnation of God. And so you know, I, he gave me an awful lot of resources. Um, use those resources to create what you're meant to create. Uh, yeah. Certainly engaging in meaningful activity People who try to be happy just to be happier are rarely successful. Yeah. People who who do their best to engage in good relationships, they get happier. They get yeah. less depressed. Yeah. People who take care of their bodies, eat healthy food, get sleep, exercise, they get healthier. 
people who find activity that feels like meaningful activity or they get less depressed and they get more happy. People that are aware of their connection, depressed people tend to get so interiorly focused that they're not aware of their power uh, socially. Every depressed person on average um, adversely affects three other people. Hmm. And the way they affect them is that if I surrender to the ruminations that are common in depression, which are negative, like your mom in that car. Okay, so you go to your mom's house when she's depressed, and what does she want to talk about? She wants to talk about that car. Yeah, yeah the same car is going up and down. Who knows what it is? Maybe it's criminals. Maybe it's the CIA. I don't know. Maybe it's the drug companies. I don't know. It's that car, Jeff. Let me talk about Okay, so you're listening there, loving your mom and talking to her, but, you know, that's a drag. Talk to her about her ruminations about the car, and she's too depressed to realize, or she might have been demented at that point, I don't know, um, to realize that that's having a negative effect on you. So one thing that, that helps depressed people is, this is the, the mindfulness piece again, is to be able to self-observe that negative ideation, which you're, you are primed to do when you're feeling bad. You know, we, 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 our thoughts follow our moods, our, uh, more than our moods follow our thoughts. Recognize those negative or pessimistic thoughts and adjust them to more positive, pro-social, optimistic thoughts. We can actually cultivate an optimistic explanatory style. If we do that with other people, we become more fun to be around. And when we're more fun to be around, they give us nonverbal signals of, of pleasure in our company that are antidepressant effects on our uh, endocrine system and our neurobiology. Mm-hmm. So that power of recognizing that negative set and, and not surrendering to it, this whole thing about trust your feelings, trust your feelings only works you know, when you are centered and connected with your higher self. Trust your feelings does not work when you're anxious, when you're depressed, when you're frightened. Trust your feelings generates um, negative uh, worldviews and destructive impulses under those circumstances. You don't want to trust your feelings. You want to evaluate your feelings and your impulses from all four quadrants and from an aqua perspective. And what that will yield are better uh, perspectives that are more realistic and more um, uh, healthy and it will yield actions that will help other people and will help you. Um, yeah. And that's why integral mindfulness is so much more important than just basic mindfulness. Because yeah. integral mindfulness is we have a responsibility to be evaluating, to, to, be, yeah. to be taking well, I, the, the, I mean, seriously. Even with, even with my mother, I mean, it, the obvious thing, and it was obvious to all of us who were taking care of her, but it, it really makes your point, is to just talk to her about something else, what we're having for dinner. Yeah you know, who was visiting, you know, whatever's going on in her life. And her depression, her, or at least her anxiety and her contraction around this loop of anxious thinking would be broken in that time. And she'd feel better. And it's just as simple as that. Yeah. I mean, you know, get her into a wee space. And that was your love healing her. That's how relationships heal people. Yeah. That's how we all need each other. That's, yeah. that's the number one thing, really. That's why we hold each um, other's hands. And- yeah. And, and, you know, it's really good to make it easier for people to hold your hand. Yeah. So it's easier when you look them in the eyes and you smile at them. And it's easier when you notice the difference between rumination and productive thought. And you turn away from rumination and towards productive thought. And it's easier when you take care of yourself. Um, it's, it's easier when you do those things. Mm-hmm. You do the things that, that we've discovered and that the wisdom traditions have told us for a long time are associated with um, not being depressed and being happier people. Yeah. Do you think the 
healing community, the therapeutic and even medical community is catching up with this thinking? I think so. Um, there's a great book called uh, Depression is Contagious. <laughs> it was written by Michael Yapko, who's the son of a famous uh, uh, group therapist, his father, um, something else, Yapko, I forget his first name, um, where uh, he's able to uh, you know, talk about all this stuff um, and not, you know, it's hard for me to talk about stuff like this and to not identify um, institutions by their unhealthy manifestation. So personally, I really have to always be correcting to say, yes, it's good that we have banks, and it's good we have insurance companies, and it's good we have pharmaceutical companies, and it's good that we have a medical industrial complex. Yes. It's, all those things are good things. Yes, they are. What I don't like is the unhealthy manifestations of those. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that, that perspective is becoming more widespread. And, and to a certain extent, they're, they're going against a headwind in that if you get trained as a therapist or as a physician, um, there's a lot of pressure on you to, to drink the Kool-Aid um, about um, uh, seeing uh, depression and anxiety also as um, diseases of biochemical imbalance. Yeah. Um, and... It's not that biochemical imbalance doesn't exist. And like you said with your mom, it's not that uh, the drugs don't, aren't very useful in specific situations. But, you know, originally, this is, this is part of allopathic medicine to begin with, originally drugs are designed to help people get back into harmony and then you stop using the drugs. The idea of using drugs on a daily basis for maintenance is a relatively new concept and it's become very pervasive in at least American society, possibly Western society. And so there's problems with that. Um, uh, and, you know, part of, one of the problems with that is that uh, you're not going for the root causes and the, and the root solutions. Mm -hmm. And the root, the root causes and the root solutions are integral causes and they're integral solutions. Uh, and I'm, I'm seeing spiral wizards all over the place. Really? Uh, I, I saw, going back to State of the Union, which just happened, to me, that was a spiral wizard doing his best yeah. um, to, to heal the spiral. I agree. Um, and I, I see that with modern uh, thought leaders in psychotherapy. I see it in the neuroscientists. I see it in the psychotherapists. I see people not taking rigid positions, taking relativistic positions. Uh, I, I see people being um, inclusive rather than exclusive in their psychopathology and their psychotherapy systems. And I'm very encouraged. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I integrally think informed psychotherapy, whether people recognize it or not, or, or call it integrally informed psychotherapy, is becoming the standard of the 21st century. Yeah. Because whether people say it or not, you know, if you're coming from all four quadrants, and, and you have a developmental orientation and you're recognizing that there's different types of people that enter different states of consciousness and you're making your adjustments according to that. You're coming from an integrally informed uh, perspective, even if you've never read any of Ken's work. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think we see this not only in psychotherapy, but kind of everywhere. I mean, people yeah. are just, if, if you're successful in, you know, pretty much any endeavor these days, you're just going to be better served if you're, I, I, I often think of, of it as being post-ideological. Uh, you know, there you where, go. Where you're just not coming from any particular school or thought or, or worldview, but just open, yeah. uh, able to contain multiple worldviews, multiple schools of thought. And, wow. um, you know, 
that's more wisdom online. And while, while self-observing your own confirmation bias. Yeah. In other right. words, we all have confirmation bias to some extent. In other words, we're always looking for data that supports our, our, our current opinions. Yep. And we slightly resist data that d- disagrees. Some of us less so than others. But if we can observe that, then uh, all of a sudden it changes. All of a sudden, you know, if you were observing that confirmation bias, you go, okay, um, what am I looking to confirm? This is, this is especially useful with depression. Because with depression, when you're feeling bad, you tend to have, your, your memory sets tend to be bad. If someone's depressed and I ask them about their history, their history is pretty dark. If someone is feeling pretty good about themselves and I ask them about their history, their history is somewhat inspiring. Mm-hmm. I've had the same conversation with the same person when they've been feeling dark and when they've been feeling good about themselves, and I've heard two different histories. Now, hmm. that's just the way human brains work. But what if we observe that confirmation bias? Yeah. What if I know that when I'm anxious, I'm, I'm priming myself to have an anxious future and an anxious past, and I adjust to a more optimistic, explanatory style about both, yeah. which generally tends to be more realistic, though interestingly, some studies have shown that depressed people make better predictions about the future. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that too. They're more, they're more likely to see problems. Um, so that, that confirmation bias is a human condition. Yeah. We all have it. But if we observe it, so that's, that is the integral platform. Yeah. Because if I'm observing my confirmation bias, then that just becomes another source of information yeah. in a much wider view of the world. That's a more accurate world view of the world and of me and of my relationships and of my development. Well, it, as, as, they, as they say, it, it becomes an object of your ever bigger subject. Yeah. You know, you see this confirmation bias as something, oh, that's, that's I, I see that. So I'm no longer being that. I can see that. And I have a bigger me that is able to see that. And that's, you know, welcome to evolution. Welcome to evolution. It reminds me of Ken has a thing out in um, Integral Life where he talks about reaching a point where you feel a felt sense of identification with everything. Yeah. And he, he was using that as an operational definition of a third-tier moment. And you can see how that continuing to expand those levels of self-observation eventually lead to first peak experiences and then more steady states a felt identification with everything. Um, now, th- those states are not depressed. <laughs> yeah, no. If, when, you, when you get depressed in, 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 from, from those perspectives, your depression is processed in an entirely different way hmm. than when you get uh, depressed um, from uh, other value means. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's an entirely different experience. What can you tell us it, about it, that? It's way more phenomenological. Um, uh, somebody asked me one time, uh, how are you feeling today? It was a Friday morning, I don't know, years and years ago. I said, I feel weak and whining. (laughs) (laughs) And so it wasn't like, and so if, if we don't have self-observation and we feel weak and whiny, we go, oh, I guess I'm a weak, whiny person. If we have self-observation, we go, oh, I'm a person who's pretty pro-life, pro-being alive, pro-happy person who's going through a weak and whiny state. This is the, this is the thing about, about Aqual. If you really understand states, then you observe your states the same way that you observe the weather. 
Mm-hmm. And so now I'm going through a depressed state the way that I would be going through a snowstorm. Yeah. Not very comfortable, but the, the snowstorm has its own rhythms and its own demands and its own in, impact on me, and I have my own way of dealing with snowstorms. And you didn't bring it on, and you didn't, you, you know, there's nothing you did to make it happen. There's nothing you can do to make it not happen. Maybe. And there's, and there's things I can do to make it worse, yeah. and there's things I can do to make it better. For instance, the thinking about death. When you, get to, when you get depressed past a certain point, you have death thoughts. This is a diagnostic criteria of depression that's a pretty reliable one. Hmm. So people come in and they'll say, being bummed, and I go, well, I've been thinking about death. And they go, ah, oh, as a matter of fact, I have. So then you go to the next level. Well, you've been thinking about killing yourself. And more often than you might imagine, people go, oh, as a matter of fact, yeah, I drive down the freeway thinking about driving into the abutment or what it would be like to jump off a building, that kind of stuff. Hmm. And then you go through the typical therapy steps to find out how serious people are. Most people aren't. But those are, those are predictable consequences of feeling bad past a certain point. Now, say you observe it. You go, you know, for me, if I ever get to a point where I have an impulse to step in front of a bus, I go, Keith, you are going through a depressed moment. And, you know, if you've got to the point where you had an impulse to step in front of a bus, you need to start engaging in the activities that you need to engage in to be more euphoric and less dysphoric. Um, and, you know, usually for me, that means reducing stress loads. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the problem with modernity and depression. There's so much stimulation and so much responsibility, and Americans are the hardest working per hour uh, people in the world, that we, build, we, we develop tolerance for stress loads, but our bodies pay the, and our moods um, are, are basically paying a price for that. And at some point, our body will break down. You know, you'll get a stress illness, and there's 70% of illnesses that go to doctors are stress-related or stress-caused illnesses. Or you'll break down psychologically and be anxious all the time and, or be depressed. Now, the idea of taking drugs and going back into that environment and not ameliorating the, the, the stress is very much like what happens with our soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, when they go there, they give them any drug they want. I mean, those guys have all the antidepressants, anti-anxieties, all the speed, all the uppers, all the downers, all the sleep medication, anything to get them back into battle. Hmm. Uh, now, that has profound negative effects on some of them when they come back, but we don't want to have that attitude towards the world. If I have a stress-producing um, lifestyle, um, I don't want to try to medicate the stress away. I need to readjust the lifestyle and readjust my interface with the stress, which is part of the lifestyle. You know, stress is a relative on both sides. It's not just the external stress coming in. It's my relationship with the stress from, from inside out that affects my subjective experience, my, my stress load in my endocrine system. Um, and that now we're going back to, to, to affecting how I think, how I relate, and what I do. Mm-hmm. And, and so someone who has a high stress, uh, say you're a, uh, some Wall Street guy, you know, one of the hard-driving, success-driven New York people. Um, and you go, okay, so for me to be able to do this life, I need to work out like you four days a week. I need to make sure that I get sleep. I need to make sure that I hang out with my family and friends. I need to stake out periods of time where I'm not available for this particular work. Mm-hmm. Um, I have clients, I've had some clients in New York who have high-stress corporate jobs, and that's how they maintain their health. You know, they basically, it's like a professional athlete. They have a higher level of standard for conditioning for their higher uh, level, higher stress lifestyle. Mm-hmm. 
So you know you, you can adjust it on in various ways, and and again that's an integral those are integral capacities yeah. because that's developmental. Um, actually, if there's something that you're doing that's causing stress, it will cause you less stress the better you get at doing it. It's like the ten thousand hour rule. Yeah. You know, after ten thousand hours, it requires less effort to have intuitive flashes in your area of of, of mastery. Yeah. Well, actually, maybe after ten thousand lifetimes, we stop being afraid to die. <laughs> There you go. You know, and maybe when we stop being afraid to die, we stop being afraid of feeling bad. And then, yeah. you know, and I, I do think there's a post-depressive stage of development, right? I think, well, especially, you know when it happens most, in my opinion? It happens when you're passing from orange to green, 16 or 17 in this culture. You see that a lot. Uh, you talk about 16 or 17-year-old teenagers? Yeah, 15 yeah. to 18-year-olds. People have developed enough neural capacity, enough self-observation, and enough, enough capacity to have relativistic thought that they can see that uh, the blue standards um, are inadequate to explain the world. And they see the corruption that they didn't see before. Mm-hmm. And they find it pre- depressing. I read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich at 16. Um, I have a lot of poetry that I wrote, and it's all bleak existential poetry because I began to see the world uh, more clearly, and I saw corruption that I hadn't seen before because I hadn't been educated about it. And then I began in a depressed fashion to identify institutions by their corruptness rather than by the integral understanding. There's a healthy side and an unhealthy side, and and in the dialectic of that development, I need to weigh in on the the healthy uh, metabolism yeah. of those institutions. And that's, um, that's I, I welcome to green, right? Welcome to green. Yeah. And, 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 and if, you, if you do it from an, from an understanding that there's natural hierarchy and you do it from an understanding that people have different develops of different skills, now you're shifting from green to teal. Yeah. Um, I have a, my Aunt Dorothy, she's a federal judge. She used to be the, um, the dean of the SC Law School. And, uh, and I've always admired her. And when she was the dean of the SC Law School, um, they were having a protest uh, against um, uh, the, something that happened with the Supreme Court and with, uh, with the war. And people were protesting outside the law school. So, and Dorothy, you know, people were saying, well, let's call the campus police and everything. And Dorothy said, I don't think so. So instead, she called a caterer. <laughs> Dorothy <laughs> called a caterer. She went out there, sat at tables, and got all kinds of donuts and coffee and stuff just loads of it. Put it out there and got her and her friends. They went out there and they sat down and they started eating donuts and drinking coffee and talking with everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, a classic healthy green response. Yeah. And she engaged in dialectics. You know, she asked them what they wanted to change about the law school. She asked them what they wanted to add and subtract from the curricula. You know, you know this was the head of the law school. Yeah. This was people. Neat. Well, so first of all, everybody had a good time. <laughs> Second of all, uh, that law school um, progressed. You know, and, and you know, it speaks for itself. The SC Law School, and she started the Center for Justice in Pasadena that still exists as a model around the world. And and she got together with the police department in the school system in Pasadena, and they said, "We want to, we want to, we want to raise the first uh, non-racist uh, generation we can. We want to start in Pasadena." I, I'm obviously quite proud of my aunt Dorothy. But my point about this is, is that that was an integral approach. You know, she'd never heard about integral, but you know. And then that's similar to what I mentioned earlier about depression. You can't just hit something from one angle. Yeah. Um, 
you got to hit it. For, in the modern society is too complicated with that. If you're dealing with something like depression, you have to hit it from multiple angles. Yeah. Um, no, it's true. And I think that's where sometimes we need to demystify integral in a certain way. It's, it's, it's nothing magical. It's, uh, well, it actually re-includes some except magic. Except when it is. Except when it is. But, you know, it's just a matter of getting smarter and having a bigger view and including more and, yeah. you know, having more flexibility of mind and, and action and uh, exactly. all that comes with that. And it's a natural growth of the human being uh, under the life conditions that support it. And we're entering that phase where we have more and more people who are functionally integral, at least in certain times and places. And that is very, very good news. And that's the difference. When you say, what's the difference between depressed? If you're at an integral altitude at your center of gravity and you're depressed, either you're in the process of resolving that depression or you're recognizing that you're neglecting a major personal responsibility. Yeah, which is more depressing yet. Yeah, which is more depressing yet. (laughs) And then what you do is you... You do what, and this is this is really useful for me. I've, I've always been more had a natural affinity for the individualistic value memes than the communal ones, and so my development involves being more communal. Then what you do is you get help. Often this is what where it brings integral uh, altitude people into therapy with me. They feel a sense of responsibility if they're depressed, they or if they're having a bad relationship. They feel a sense of responsibility to improve it. They don't. They go, okay, well. If I'm not doing it with me or with my partners or with my friends, then I got to get more help because I have a responsibility to be moving through this. Mm-hmm. That's part of my contribution, uh, my responsibility as a as a human being in the world. Yeah, that's characteristic of depression in the second tier. There's that. It, it's mm-hmm. not a sense of alarm. Oh, I got to do it. I'm all alarmed about my depression or my anxiety. Right. It's more of a sense of responsibility. Okay. Well, it's it's like if you break your arm and you do your physical therapy. Yeah, okay. I'll do exactly. my physical therapy. I'm a human being. You know, things break. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, you know, I fix them if I can. And I yeah. I know how. Right on, man. <laughs> depression. Well, yeah. Well, it. You know. It. Really does. I mean, I feel like there really is an updraft of wisdom that, you know, I'm just feeling even in this call that I can sort of rely on and, and feel buoyed by uh, uh-huh. in, in my own psyche. And, you know, I hope that people who are listening feel some of that too. Uh, yeah, I hope that you that are listening, I hope you are. And and if you're not feeling happy to be alive, then do the stuff we've been talking about until you start feeling happy to be alive most of the time. Yeah, exactly. Because you have responsibility to yourself and to the people around you to do that, and, and to all of us. Yeah. You know, that's, that's how we all serve each other. I know, I, you know, it breaks my heart that there's so much unhappiness in the world, and, and yet it encourages me, and it, it gives me meaning and purpose and hope that there's so much wisdom and, and so much love in the world and so many people helping each other and so many brilliant solutions and alternatives and, mm-hmm. and, and evolutionary movements that are happening throughout our lifetime. No, it's amazing. It's, it's staggering. It's a wonderful thing. Uh-huh. Well, all right, Dr. Keith, thank you. <laughs> For, we got thank that all you. straightened out finally for everybody. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Dr. Keith. Uh, and uh, stay uh, in touch with us and uh, keep listening to The Shrink and the Pundit. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.